Now that we've been introduced to the philosophy of lifestyle medicine and spent a little bit of time considering a coach approach where the patient is an active partner in their care, it's time to turn to a discussion of the individual pillars of lifestyle medicine, starting with one you know very well, and that is physical activity or exercise. Now that being said, these objectives may very well be a review for you. And so what I'm going to try to do is indicate places where I may ask you to know that, but I'm assuming you've had that information in previous exercise science courses. And then I'll try to concentrate on highlighting and pulling out some of the coach approach applications of how you would encourage increased physical activity and exercise to fulfill a lifestyle medicine approach. Now, there will be some things that I will refer you to in the module that I'll ask you to know that I won't belabor in detail here. So just be sure that you take a look at that because this should be some things you already know, um, but I want to make sure that you understand there is still an expectation that you know it for this course, even though it's a review for you, hopefully from previous material. Now, likely you could recite for me the definitions of physical activity versus exercise. It's really important to move everybody toward formal exercise. Yet if your patient or client has been sedentary for some time, the terminology you use to approach this can make a difference because for some individuals, exercise is um, kind of a dirty word. It's it's something they're very resistant to. So that distinction, that physical activity is any bodily movement um, that results in an expenditure of energy. Just the word activity might be more um, well taken by somebody in conversation. Whereas exercise may be something that they've um, had bad experience with, um, not been successful with in the past. And even though this is a planned or structured form of activity that involves, you know, maintaining or promoting physical fitness, that may be something where you just need to walk a fine line. And this is where, um, you know, having a conversation tailoring your conversation to the individual. And this means, you know, having empathic listening. Remember, we talked about how you need to be able to observe with more than just listening for the words that people are using, you know, notice their body language, notice how they respond to the term exercise versus physical activity, because that rapport you can develop with them could lead to more fruitful conversation. If you can really understand where they're coming from, if the word exercise is producing a negative response. Now, for some, um, this can be really important to understanding their motivation behind adopting an increased amount of physical activity. For some, their motivation is going to be avoiding or treating disease. That's kind of the point of lifestyle medicine, right? We want to um, prevent or treat chronic disease with lifestyle behaviors. Given that, we're going to spend a couple minutes here talking about the impact of exercise on the various bodily systems. And we're going to kind of concentrate on those systems that lead to the most common chronic diseases in the United States. The book goes into more detail on some of the other systems, but I'm really going to concentrate more here on the most common chronic diseases. And we know that heart disease is the most common um, cause of death in the United States. So let's talk about the circulatory system. Now, we know that part of the process 
um, that leads to heart disease has to do with a few risk factors, right? And one of those is cholesterol. What is great about exercise is it's a way to raise your good cholesterol or, or HDL and reduce your bad cholesterol or LDL. It also lowers the heart rate in the long term and reduces blood pressure. And blood pressure is one of the very common risk factors that eventually leads to heart disease in many people. And so understanding that exercise could be a non-pharmaceutical way to treat blood pressure and cholesterol, that can be really important for people to eventually reduce risk of heart attack, stroke, and diabetes. So we'll talk about diabetes more in a moment here. But diabetes has a close relationship with heart disease, and so this can be an important prevention for that. Now, it also has an impact on the respiratory system. So in the long term, it increases, in the short term, it increases the rate and depth of breathing. But in the long term, it improves the respiratory function. Now, what about something that's all too common, particularly as people get older, and that's um, issues with the digestive system? Now, um, regular light to moderate intensity exercise can actually be really useful for combating constipation, which is more common as people age. They have a harder time adjusting their fluid levels, um, with tend to have a reduced thirst response and therefore more likely to be dehydrated, which can lead to constipation. However, that exercise regularly can um, cause more frequent bowel movements. And so that could be a non-pharmaceutical treatment for constipation. It also reduces risks with diverticular disease and colon cancer. Now there is a downside to exercise in the digestive system, and that's dependent on um, how close it is in time between when a person eats and when they exercise, and what and how much is consumed at that time. Because you can have increased risk of, um, you know, loose stools, um, more frequent bowel movements, as I said, and, and for some individuals who have more sensitive conditions with their digestive system, that could be a downside of exercise in the digestive system, but you can adjust that by taking a look at what you're eating and when in relationship to when you plan to be physically active. Now, as I said, one of the other big things with disease in the U.S. is diabetes and its relationship to heart disease. We talked in the very first module about the increase in obesity and how that seems to be related to the increase in diabetes incidence and therefore the risk of heart disease and heart attack. So there is a really important relationship with exercise and lowering blood sugar levels and improving the response to insulin. So this is something that, again, for somebody who's pre-diabetic or diabetic, exercise can be a really important way to help manage blood sugar and potentially reduce the need for medication with diabetes, particularly in type 2. Now, type 1, they don't make insulin. They're going to need insulin. But for type 2 diabetics, this is going Going to be an important part of lifestyle management of diabetes. The immune system, another critical part of our response to our world. And so new antigens can be better responded to with regular exercise. Your response to vaccines is better with regular exercise. Now there are some downsides to this with overtraining, but most likely that is not going to be an issue for some of the majority of the patients and clients you are working with unless you happen to be working with elite athletes. That's one of the few times that you can see a downside to exercise's impact on the immune system. But for most 
people in the general population, it's going to be a positive thing to have regular exercise as far as their immune response. Now, we know very well that there's a huge impact of exercise on the musculoskeletal system. Um, in the short term, you're going to get, with rest afterwards, muscles growing and rebuilding. Um, it's going to be really important in the long term, particularly for people as they age, to counteracting the natural process of sarcopenia, that muscle loss that can happen with age. Because while we've associated it with aging, it most likely is just due to a decrease in activity as people get older. We're just naturally more sedentary as we get older and we're sitting more to work or, it's, or other um, you know, bad habits we've developed as we've gotten older. But it can be an important part of flexibility and balance for individuals as they age and reducing the risk of falls. Now, as far as the skeletal system and its relationship with that, um, exercise can be a really important adjunct to treating or preventing arthritis. Um, now, that's taking into account that some exercise will cause issues with certain joints, but as a whole, regular low impact exercise can really help keep joints healthy by increasing synovial fluid. You can also, particularly for women, have an important benefit of um, counteracting the bone loss that can occur, particularly with women in, in postmenopausal period where the density, size, and weight of their bones can decrease. We can counteract that by encouraging regular weight-bearing exercise that's going to um, counteract that breakdown of bone that can happen. Now with the nervous system, you know, it used to be thought that you could not repair or grow new brain cells, but we now know that regular exercise can, and I'll talk about this a little more in just a second, can be really important to maintaining and growing new brain cells, making new connections between existing brain cells. So this becomes really important, particularly when we start talking about the impact of Alzheimer's disease in our country, because those rates have also drastically increased as our population has aged. So improving cognitive function and brain health is something that many people, as they age, are going to be looking for. But even in the short term, it's going to enhance your alertness and concentration and reduce stress. We'll talk a little bit more in just a moment about the effects on the brain um, with exercise that some people may not even particularly you know, think of with exercise and its importance. So it's more than just the body. It's more than just these things that we talk about with heart disease and diabetes, you know, bone health, musculoskeletal health. It also is just an everyday importance to combating depression, anxiety, stress, improving our cognition. In fact, they've determined that this really important structure in the center of the brain called the hippocampus, which helps with our consolidation of memories and helps with learning, it actually increases in volume with regular exercise. So that improved learning, improved focus. And this can be... Um, one of those things that um, along with our understanding now that you can grow and repair brain cells, that you're going to be able to enhance your working memory and com combat, combat the losses that may occur with aging. You better spatial awareness, attention, and planning, some of those executive functions. 
So this brain-derived neurotrophic factor is increased with regular exercise. It combines with a hormone that promotes brain cell growth. So we now know that exercise provides very important improvements to various parts of the brain. And we've known also that some of the effects of exercise tend to mimic what we've been using as medication to treat some mental health conditions. For example, one of the medications functions for reducing depression is serotonin, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. Well, exercise we know is released as part of um, the exercise process. So we get an enhanced mood when we exercise. We get an increase in um, norepinephrine. So improving attention, perception, motivation. We're also getting an increase in dopamine from exercise. And dopamine is one of the things that is decreased in Parkinson's. So dopamine is important for improving motivation, our focus, which are part of our reward center and pleasure in the brain. And we get this runner's high. Um, that's the term, and that doesn't necessarily have to be with running only. But endorphins are released that dull our sensation of pain. So it's our body's own natural painkillers. So that's going to be something that just makes us in general feel good with exercise. So that along with that brain-derived neurotrophic factor, you're repairing um, the, and able to address any degeneration of neurons. So exercise has massive mental health benefits. But much like the medications that had traditionally been used for depression and anxiety treatment, regular exercise takes a while. It takes time to see the benefits of regular exercise to mental health in the same way that mental health medications can take a little bit of time to have their regular effect. So this can be something that you can remind individuals of to make sure they understand that just like with medications that address mental health, these take time. And so it's, it just reinforces the impact that regular exercise can have. And so sticking to a regular exercise routine is going to be important, but how do we get people there? You know, these benefits can be looked at from both a medical model and a mental health model. And so we've talked about heart disease. We've talked about the the impact on blood glucose, and those are some of our biggest issues in terms, along with obesity, in the U.S. in terms of chronic disease. So we've got to help people understand from a lifestyle medicine perspective that exercise is medicine, right? That's something you guys all know. It's something that's been part of your um, education and curriculum in this program. So blood pressure, blood glucose, cholesterol, that all can be addressed using exercise and other lifestyle factors. And so that becomes an important part of the medical model with exercise. But something that we may take for granted and can be part of that reminder for people is that the other lifestyle factors that are affected here include sleep. It really helps with our stress levels. And that is something that is relatively high in the U.S. according to surveys. We'll talk more about both stress and sleep a little bit later in the course. But our self-esteem, our energy levels, our mood, endurance, and energy. 
It also has an impact on individual sex drive, which can be something later in life that can impact relationships. We'll talk about relationships in this class a little bit later. So all of these together, we know it's so beneficial. So why don't we embrace it more? Well, you know, unfortunately, we've had some trends in society. We talked about that in the first module. We've become so much more sedentary. And so while we also talked about in this class how the primary behavior, um, the, you know, the behavior that has the highest cause of death in the U.S. is smoking. You know, there's some that are now arguing that sitting is the new smoking. Um, in fact, there's an interesting article and several research studies that are reinforcing this um, that excessive sitting is a lethal activity, that, that sitting is the new smoking. And in an article um, in, in 2010 in the journal Circulation, they actually equated the hour of, hours of time spent sitting or watching television and translated that at each additional hour of television watching translated to an 11% increase in all-cause mortality. That's quite depressing. And so there has been, as you're well aware of, this movement to sit less and move more because sitting has a huge list of risks. We know that you just lose some of your functional capacity the less time that you're moving. You lose some flexibility. You lose some of the strength in your muscles and bones the more sedentary you are. In fact, your greater risk of osteoporosis. Obviously, weight increases the more sedentary you are. Those mental health risks, anxiety, depression, your blood pressure tends to go up the more sedentary you are. Those all end up leading to these things, cardiovascular disease. There's a higher rate of colon cancer among those who are more sedentary. Stroke risk goes up. Breast cancer risk for women also goes up. Type 2 diabetes. So you can see how this is huge. So the goal is to encourage more physical activity, more exercise. So from here, we move into some of the things that are more likely a review for you. We need to include an encouragement of physical fitness. And you know that fitness as a whole is a combined set of attributes that allow someone to have the ability to perform physical activity. So it's a combination of endurance or aerobic fitness, your muscular strength and endurance, flexibility, and then ultimately your level of body fatness. In fact, um, some authors refer to this instead as the five S's. Stamina, where your aerobic fitness comes in. Strength, combining your muscular strength and endurance. Flexibility or suppleness. And stability gets into what I mentioned before about older adults, and that has to do with balance, right? Your ability to not have falls as you age. And then size is in relationship to body composition or body fatness. So you could remember them in either way, but they all get at this idea that um, physical fitness is more than just one aspect, that we have to address all of these to truly obtain physical health as it relates to physical activity. Now, as you know, though, it is really important to address safety and readiness before undertaking an exercise routine. So this, again, is likely a review for you. Very important, particularly with people who have been sedentary for a long time, to have a readiness screening. And, a, and this allows you to identify whether someone perhaps should check in with their physician first before um, undertaking a new physical activity plan. 
And so um, that is shown in the textbook, the updated PAR-Q. Um, but in terms of assessing where people are in those various levels of fitness, some of these are just something that's not going to be available to everybody. And there are ways to estimate some of these. So check out what's in the textbook as a review, most likely things you already know from other classes. But looking at your cardiorespiratory or endurance fitness, the, you know, the gold standard is actually measuring someone's VO2 max. That is something that needs to be done in a laboratory with specialized equipment and may not be available to some people who are just getting started and not working directly with a athletic trainer or directly with an exercise physiologist. So they may need to estimate that based on heart rate, for example. And that's, again, outlined in the textbook. Um, muscular fitness, you know, again, there are some ways to do this with more formal technology. There are some relatively easy ones like a grip test or calisthenic exercises. You know, how many sit-ups or push-ups can you do during a certain period of time? Um, but I will be quite honest with you, um, you know, with particularly these two assessments with cardiorespiratory and muscular fitness, this can actually be highly discouraging for some people who are just getting started. If they have been sedentary for a very long time, that is going to be something they are going to be less likely to be interested in. Um, but it is important for them to at least do some sort of readiness assessment for you to determine their risk. Flexibility does have some that are easy that people don't get too upset about, like a sit and reach test. But another one that can be discouraging for people is the measurement of body composition. You probably have learned in other classes that skin fold measures are pretty unreliable. Even in individuals who have been trained and done it for years, there can be like a three to five percent, um, you know, um, issue with being reliable and having a correct measurement over time. That even with the same person doing it with you know, um, multiple measurements that they're not always accurate. And so skin fold, that also can be very discouraging for people measuring circumferences, particularly with women who may already have body image concerns. This can be a problem. So my personal take on these is that while they may be very important to determining where somebody is now to understand where we would like to go, um, that a readiness, um, measure of some kind, either this or the ACSM risk stratification, which we'll talk about at the end of this lecture. These can be important. However, in some cases, it may be that you just want to encourage somebody to get started with regular lifestyle activity like walking or being on their feet more so that they begin to increase confidence. Whereas if you start right out with doing body composition measures, and you know, doing some sort of VO2 max test or muscular fitness test, you could actually discourage people from continuing. It's going to um, perhaps decrease their mood a little bit in terms of reflecting on their motivation for getting starting with exercise. So for those who have been sedentary a long time, it may be something to consider that you put these off a little bit other than a readiness and risk assessment and just encourage regular lifestyle activity, just being on their feet more or walking more so that we can build up confidence to move forward. Once they're ready though to adopt a more formal physical activity or formal exercise, you want to help them choose the right thing for them. And this is a nice acronym um, that's outlined in the textbook. 
um, it's just safe with two of each letter except only one of the letter A. And what's nice about this is it, it really kind of guides you to help people select something that has scientific, scientifically documented benefits. You know, they could be watching infomercials or commercials that, you know, have pretty outlandish claims. If they use this particular um, expensive piece of equipment, they're going to have these massive results. Um, and so, you know, scientifically documented benefits are what we're encouraging them to find and safe, something that's not going to provide a chance for injury, that it has precautions and that it's appropriate for their level. And this is where going back to those assessments could be a place where if they have gotten started, they're motivated enough, this would be where going back to those assessments can be important. So they are selecting something that meets their current fitness level, but yet is enough of a challenge to encourage them, to motivate them to move forward. And functionally sound. So this has become, as I'm sure you're aware, a movement more recently, that whatever type of movement or exercise or activity you're doing serves some sort of purpose. So for somebody who's older, who perhaps have noticed that they're struggling um, with getting up from a chair, then, then mimicking those movements or picking things up off the ground. So mimicking everyday movements so that they can see the benefits. They see, oh yeah, I'm not having as much problem. I'm having less pain when I get up. Or, you know, some of these things can be motivating if you can make those connections a functional purpose to what they're doing. And then just how they feel about it. You know, what is their general impression of this? Um, this activity that they're hoping to adopt? Um, is it effective? Is it going to move them forward in their fitness? Does it provide more endurance? Does it provide more strength? Does it effectively improve their bone density? Things like that that resonate with them. And enjoyment. This is really important, particularly with newer exercisers, right? They, they need to find something that they enjoy or they won't look forward to it. They'll feel it's a drudgery and they may do it for a short period of time because they feel they have to, but then it drops off. And if what we want to promote is a lifestyle change, then they need to find joyful movement. And I'll talk a little bit more about that toward the end. Now, once they've identified the right exercise, you know, by making these, um, you know, sort of criticisms of their choices and then choosing something, you want to encourage them to start low and go slow, right? So it's really important that they have a gradual progression of that exercise, but, you know, by increasing time slowly or increasing the frequency or intensity slowly so that they are going to be more likely to follow through, so more adherent to it, and then have a, the less lesser chance of injury because an injury is going to set them back and be discouraging. Um, and that could even be something that puts them um, out of commission for a long period of time. And that, again, will be something that, that is a hurdle for them to get over. Now, we also want to encourage the start low and go slow because there are some potential issues with ramping up too fast. You may have people that for whatever reason are incredibly motivated and maybe it's a time thing. Let's say they've got uh, a high school reunion coming up and you know they've given themselves two months to lose a certain amount of um, weight and perhaps get more toned and improve their appearance so to speak. And so for those we really need to help guide so that they aren't putting themselves at increased risk of injury. Um, 
you know, just with muscles or bones, for example, stress fractures. But one thing, particularly with new exercisers, that can be important is this delayed onset muscle soreness because that they may um, view as a bad thing with exercise. So they may be like, oh, I hate exercising. Every time I do it, I get sore. So having an understanding that yes, as you begin exercise, particularly with strength exercises, you may find that you have some soreness. However, giving yourself rest, time to recover, that is just your body, you know, remodeling. And that will be less as you continue to use those muscles after that period of rest at first. So, you know, we don't want them to stop exercising because they're only perceiving negative effects of getting started. You can help counsel them with things like um, rest, drinking water, anti-inflammatories, cold or heat, whichever seems to work best for them. So some of these things may require a little bit of education and counseling so that they can understand that that's a possibility. You may have soreness, but it shouldn't be something that stops you because you perceive exercise as only being associated with pain. That's not what we're going for, right? Now, as exercise science students, I know that you're not ignorant of the physical activity guidelines and recommendations. So in fact, you could probably repeat them to me. You probably have them memorized. So I'm just going to briefly bring them up here for completeness sake, knowing that you already likely know these things, right? So we know from the physical activity guidelines that we are recommending 150 minutes of moderate intensity physical activity a week. And that's what your goal is going to be for those who have been sedentary. For those who perhaps have been progressing slowly through an increase in activity and they're ready to do something more vigorous and they have a low risk profile in terms of their exercise, they may be able to go into something more vigorous. And that could be even something motivating for people. You know, in the beginning, they may feel like, I don't have time to exercise. So if they can at least work themselves up to an increase in intensity, it may be motivating to realize, hey, if I could do something with more intensity, I don't need as much. I can cut that time in half. And that may feel more doable for people like, hey, I could go for a 20 minute run three times a week, um, you know, and get that out of the way much more easily or a 15 minute run four times a week. And so that's going to... Um, cut down on the time that I need to set aside. But that is something that, again, that progression, starting low and slow for a new exerciser, that's going to be important. So they realize that you need to be able to work up to that level of intensity. Now, let's say you've got people who they've been motivated, they've been, you know, exercising for a while. If they can go beyond that 150 minutes, research has indicated they have an even greater benefit to their overall health and chronic disease prevention. So that could, again, be a goal. And people may realize those those mental health benefits and those improvements in mood and stress reduction become something that they crave. And so that becomes less of an issue, increasing those minutes of intensity um, with exercise each week because they begin to want that and it becomes less of a drudgery. Now, so the strength training, f balance, and flexibility, um, and actually I should back up a moment to say that I am addressing this towards adults, right? Depending on the age group that we're talking about, for children it's an hour a day. 
Um, and so that is something to be aware of. And some of these other things may not be as likely to be referred to with children. So balance and flexibility is not something we necessarily think of in younger life, but it can be really important for older adults. So depending on your age group, some of these recommendations may be different. I'm concentrating on adults for the purposes of this class, but depending on the population you work with in the future, it may be um, important for you to readdress those physical activity guidelines for various age groups. So with strength training, again, I assume you know this already from previous courses, twice a week, non-consecutive days, ideally for adults and especially older adults, at least 48 hours between your strength training um, or resistance training sessions. And ideally you want to get to all muscle groups. Now it could be, depending on the person, they want to do all muscle groups twice a week. It could be that they just want to alternate spacing those out, doing upper body Monday and Thursday, you know, lower body, you know, um, Monday, Wednesday, you know, just alternating the muscle groups so, so long as by the end of the week they've completed exercises for every muscle group. Um, now, flexibility and balance, as I said, are going to become more important, particularly for older adults because it reduces falls risk. Um, which is something that if you're regularly exercising, you're going to have a lower risk of anyway. But if we are trying to work with somebody who's been sedentary, then this may be something to consider as a way to get started. So while you and I being younger, we may gravitate toward endurance exercise as what we start with. For some people, strength training may be what they're motivated to get started with. So here's again where that empathic listening having the conversation, being open to what individuals are interested in. Because for some, they be, may be like, you know, I really hate sweating. I am not really interested in getting started with endurance exercise or aerobic exercise, but I kind of like lifting weights. And so for them, it may be that this is where you start with increasing physical activity. And as they reap the benefits of that and realize how good it makes them feel, then they're like, you know, maybe I'll do some walking on the days in between my strength training. So just being open and understanding that what we assume works for us may not work for everybody else. So this is where that coach approach is really important, being open to which of these components of the physical activity guidelines somebody may be more interested and willing to start with first. Now, regardless of what they choose to do. Um, if you look at the research, it's pretty important to help people realize that, you know, something is better than nothing. In fact, even low amounts of moderate or vigorous intensity, if they can just embrace something, they reduce their risk of their all-cause mortality. And what's interesting here is look at how steep the slope of this curve is. So this is met hours per week of leisure time physical activity. So even less than five, even less than one hour per week, you have a massive drop in your mortality. So this is where people can maybe begin to embrace this idea that even just going from inactive to what we would call insufficiently active has a huge drop in mortality. So it's not like they need to go from zero to 60 real fast. You know, just helping them realize that any increase in activity is better than none. Any increase in activity is going to reduce their mortality. You don't get up to 150 until right here. But look at how fast that drops just 
increasing activity at all. So that 70% of the benefit doesn't come until you get to more than eight med hours per week. So this is kind of a research-based, evidence-based reasoning for just getting people off the couch, less sitting is going to be really important. Now, exercise does pose some risks, right? So cardiovascular risks, musculoskeletal risks in terms of injury. So this is where that warm-up, start low, go slow, cool down, stretch, particularly for older adults, is going to be important. And while doing a parkour is great, you may also want to consider ACM's risk stratification system because it used to be that we told everybody you have to get clearance from a doctor before you adopt a new physical activity um, plan. But that became a barrier. It became a hurdle for people to get over. And so ACSM said, you know, maybe we need to come up with a way that people can feel as though they can get started with exercise without having to go to their doctor just to get that kind of check. Because, you know, everything's about money in terms of reimbursement. So insurance may not pay for you just to go to the doctor and say, hey, am I cleared for exercise? So we've got this risk stratification system that you can use, low, moderate, and high, to determine whether individuals can safely start exercise without that doctor's clearance. So let's go over this. And again, this may be a complete review for you, depending on what other courses you've had so far in the program. But a low risk would be men under the age of 45, women under 55, who are asymptomatic and have no more than one risk factor. So they would be cleared for low, moderate, and vigorous activity vigorous intensity activity. So what are those risk factors? No more than one risk factor, a family history of cardiovascular disease, current smoking, obesity, hypertension, high cholesterol, and being considered pre-diabetic, most likely due to elevated blood glucose or an elevated hemoglobin A1c. So these are things you could ask in an initial visit with somebody. Or it could be part of that PARQ information that you're able to glean from doing that screening. That, yes, they have a family history. Or, yes, they've been told that they're hypertensive. Or, yes, they've had blood work indicating that they have high cholesterol. But they can only have one of these. Now, the other caveat here is that an elevated HDL is a negative risk factor. So, and this is quite common for women. They tend to have a higher HDL, particularly prior to menopause. So for them, let's say that they are hypertensive, but they have an elevated HDL, then that would sort of negate that. It would be like having no risk factor. So just something to keep in mind. Now, a moderate risk. This would be if you're over 45 or 55 for women, and you have two or more risk factors. You could go ahead with these individuals with low to moderate intensity, but moving beyond that, it's recommended for further evaluation. So reaching out to the physician and getting clearance there. Now, high-risk individuals are considering the considered those who have signs or symptoms of cardiovascular, metabolic, or pulmonary disease, or those who have been diagnosed with any of those. And so this is where it is extremely important to have that further evaluation before starting any sort of physical activity. And that's because it, there is some danger here in starting a exercise program without that clearance could potentially cause a, an emergency event. And we don't want to have that. You know, we don't want to be 
um, ending up in the emergency room because somebody starts an exercise program when they had some sort of risk that should have been caught before starting. Now for some, um, you could encourage something that again gets them off of their butt, you know, not sedentary, but isn't traditional exercise. So you could consider interesting options like an exercise machine with hair, right? Now I've mentioned before that um, animals, particularly dogs, can be encouraging for reducing sedentary activity, particularly if you live in the city or you live in a neighborhood. Um, in fact, there was a Norwegian psychiatrist who said, you know, instead of buying exercise equipment, which traditionally people will buy thinking that that's going to be motivation to use it, they end up sitting it in the corner and it collects dust. Instead, getting a dog kind of doesn't let you do that. For example, you know, you can't not walk the dog if you live in a neighborhood and you're in the city. You know, they have to go out. Um, now in the country, this might be different. You might be able to just let them out in a fenced backyard. And so you get out of that, um, walking the dog, but this is where you could consider a coach approach with exercise is that you could explore these interesting options for people that provides companionship, that provides mental health benefit, that provides, um, something that is a mood lifter, but yet gets them more active by nature of having to take care of something having to take care of this animal for its welfare. So that's just an interesting, you know, perspective or option that some people have proposed. Rather than spending money on expensive equipment, explore some interesting options that may get people more um, active that they don't even realize they're being more active. Now, the main author of our text, and that's actually her in that picture with her dog, um, she has come up with approach an approach to using coaching for physical activity based on the phrase, a rolling stone gathers no moss. And so she has called it the Freight's moss method. And this is a specific way to approach increasing physical activity using that as an acronym for motivation, obstacles, strengths, and strategies. So you could take this moss method as a framework for your coaching conversations as they apply to physical activity. And the idea here would be to get people rolling, get people moving, right? So let's walk through each of these and what a coaching conversation might look like addressing motivation, obstacles, strategies, and strengths. So starting with motivation, you know, it's really important to have an open, empathic, um, compassionate, conversation with people to understand their motivators because just saying you need to exercise isn't enough you have to be able to get at their reasons why because motivators come in all shapes and sizes so for some it may be that they have a family history that they want to avoid for themselves they want to be around for their kids and be a role model for their kids they want to avoid a history of a disease or they've already had a setback with a disease themselves. Um, and they really don't want that to continue. They don't want that to further affect their health. You know, they could have somebody close to them struggling with something and they don't want that for themselves. Um, they could, it could be just that they're frustrated with how they feel in their own skin right now. Maybe their clothes are too tight. Maybe they're embarrassed when they are 
at the pool with their kids and, you know, everybody's wearing swimsuits. It could be that they're around friends or family who, um, and they're just self-conscious with how they look. You know, it could be that they, you know, have a love interest. It could be something that, um, you know, they want to improve their appearance so they can feel more attractive to a spouse or somebody that they're interested in. It could be, as I said, something um, that you have in your future, a wedding to attend, a family reunion, a high school reunion. And so they want to present their best selves for that. And those are external motivators. And we do know from our previous module that finding internal motivators can actually be better long-term because once the high school reunion's done, once the wedding is done, what's going to continue their motivation? So getting at something more long-term, your children, your grandchildren. And then here's the ultimate internal motivator, right? I feel good when I exercise. I feel better about myself. I feel more energized. I find that I'm more creative. I'm more efficient when I've had that exercise. So this is where having those conversations can be really important. It's also important to recognize that some of these things that be motivators for one person may not be a motivator for the next. You know, so for some, I can't get my screen to change here. Hold on, guys. It could be that one person's motivators are another person's obstacles. You know, some people may say, I really don't like getting sweaty. You know, for some people, they're like, I love that high. I love how I feel with the exercise. And others are like, I, I really don't want to have to take a shower. I really don't want to have to change my clothes because I'm all sweaty. I don't like getting winded. I don't like how I feel with that. Or I've tried it before. There could be some people that it, it's discouraging their previous history with exercise. There could be a physical barrier. Maybe they have arthritis pain. And that telling them that exercise could actually improve their arthritis symptoms could just be a barrier that they can't get through. Because all they are experiencing just getting started is the pain. There could be some other issue. So finding those obstacles... Um, which for some could be that they just haven't explored their motivation. It could be that they have others around them that are bringing them down, so to speak. Having a spouse that uh, likes to have junk food in the house and prefers to sit and watch TV. And so they have no support system around them. It could be somebody just has a lot on their plate. They're working a ton and they feel as though there's no time. And so I'll talk in a moment about how finding strategies for those types of people may be important. It could be they just don't know where to start. They have a lack of experience. It could be they feel they don't have resources. Either maybe they need to get out of the house so they don't have an environment for exercising. Maybe they're in a neighborhood that's not conducive to that. Um, and so they need to find a gym and they don't have enough money to buy exercise equipment for their own home or to join a gym. Um, you know, not having something that is specific, those SMART goals that we talked about. Some of these, you know, could feel like a huge barrier, but they don't need to be deal breakers. And this is where a coach approach comes in because conversation and brainstorming to investigate these obstacles and then form strategies around them, you know, these can be important. They may at first feel as though these are insurmountable barriers. 
But you can overcome these and sometimes it takes fleshing it out, brainstorming, taking a little creative approach to it, a positive appreciative inquiry approach that can be important. So finding that motivator and it may not be what they think it is. You know, it could be that they're thinking about that high school reunion or wedding, not realizing that the more they talk through, they're like, you know, yeah, that's great. But, you know, I want to be around for my kids or my grandkids and my dad died at 58 or my mom, you know, had breast cancer and that, you know, seems to have a link to exercise. So some of these things, just the conversation could get down to a true motivator that lies beneath the surface. And then consider finding that support system. So this can even go back as you consider the stages of change and those different um, processes of change that can come into it. You know, finding a partner or buddy that could help motivate you. Considering creative ways to address the perceived barriers here. You know, if you have a really busy work schedule, what are ways you could be more active? Not taking the elevator, taking the stairs, um, having walking meetings. Um, You know, are there other ways that you could decrease sitting time? Um, And, you know, some of those may be ways you have to fit in and could even find creative ways to alter your work environment. Um, Some of them may even be tax deductible or be something that your um, wellness plan at your employer may promote or help you do, like altering your desk environment, your office environment with treadmill desks, standing desks, desk chairs, because Many people and employers realize that their employers or employees are more productive with some of these changes because we know that there is a relationship to, you know, your brain function, your productivity, your efficiency with exercise. Um, So some of these are creative ways that employers and employees could address this, I don't have time to exercise um, obstacle that is perceived. You can also work with an individual's strengths. And this is really important because this works well with that strategy building to build confidence. This is where you get confidence because you tease out those areas that are already inside the person that they already possess these strengths. They just may not have realized how they can apply that. So this part of the conversation kind of goes back to that motivational interviewing aspect of affirmations. You as um, the practitioner can use the coach approach in this affirming, like in motivational interviewing, to help them recognize when they're explaining something to you. They talk about you know, maybe something they did over the weekend that was highly creative. You could say, wow, that was a, that was a really creative way for you to go about doing that. I'm wondering in what ways you could have a creative approach to this situation. You could even note how you're extremely determined and you could flip the script, so to speak here. You may have people who are like, you know, I'd always do great for three months exercising and then I fall off the wagon. You could turn that into a positive by saying, you know, you're really persistent. You're very perseverant. And you really want to do this. You're not deterred by falling off the wagon. You always come back to it, which tells me it's really important to you. You won't let those things derail you for very long. You always come back to it. So helping them realize that you could turn some of these into a recognition of their strengths that they use to move forward. 
identifying things that they may not have realized. You know, what is their support system? You may be able to say, wow, you're, you're fortunate to have people around you who encourage you to be more active. How could you harness that to move forward? So it's all part of kind of a motivational interviewing approach to working with their strengths to identifying how to move forward. Now, here's where once you've kind of maybe gone through this MOSS method of motivators, obstacles, strategies, and strengths, you could then convert this into a SMART goal, right? Remember that that's kind of what we're doing here. And that SMART goal could then inform your actual exercise prescription. And you guys know all about these, right? That, that fit prescription. And you're more likely to try and follow through and feel comf- confident with a SMART goal if you've got this, this accountability. You remind them of what they've done, what they can draw from, what motivates them, and know that you're going to check up on them and you're going to write a prescription that you're expecting them to follow. Now, this is that exercises medicine philosophy, right? So in the same way that we might prescribe a medication to treat something, we can prescribe exercise. Now, I'll go through this quickly because, again, most likely this is just a review for you guys. So that fit prescription, the F is frequency. How often? Five days a week, three days a week. You know, is it a combination of moderate intensity, vigorous intensity? Because that's your eye, right? The intensity. How hard are they working? And this needs to be individualized. And it is partly going to be dependent on what part of that risk stratification they were in at the time, right? You know, so are they cleared for low to moderate um, intensity exercise? That could be part of what your Um, including here, but this also means that people need to have an understanding of how to determine that for themselves. Now, if you're an AT or um, an exercise physiologist or maybe even a PT, you may be working with them in individual sessions where you are monitoring this. This may be part of your expertise. It's also going to be something, though, that if you want them to become independent exercisers, they need to be able to monitor this on their own, which might mean trying to evaluate their health literacy. So how much do they know about monitoring intensity? You can use target heart rate for this. This would require them to have a heart rate monitor when they may or may not have that. Um, If that's the case, then you could, if they do have one, they could monitor this based on their max heart rate and having a target heart rate range that would, you know, fit into this, you know, light or low to moderate activity level. On the other hand, for those who can't or don't want to use heart rate, um, you know, the perceived um, exertion scale can be important here, you know, whether it's the original or the modified one that's just on a scale of one to 10, you know, this can be helpful here too, kind of equating this with, um, you know, what they're experiencing. So if you're shooting for moderate, for example, this might be you know, just moderate to light sweating and able to speak relatively easily, that could tell a person that your heart rate is up high enough that you're in the moderate level, but, you know, not so much that you are having difficulty speaking. And that's kind of where you get into this internal monitoring or talk tests or sing tests, depending on, um, you know, the terminology. So here, you know, you if you're telling somebody you want them to be at a moderate level, if they're exercising when they're not in your presence as the practitioner, then you want them to be able to easily talk. Um, But if it's somebody who has greater risk with 
a vigorous activity, then you want to make sure they know to not be at such an intensity that they're having difficulty talking or to stop if they get to that point. So it can be important for new exercisers if you want them to independently be active that they understand and have a adequate literacy level of how to determine intensity on their own. Now for some people they're using tracking devices that help with their heart rate and so they can just you know have an app or a tracking device tell them if they're in their you know target heart rate range. Now what about the time? That can be in another important component. How long? Now if we're looking to accumulate 150 minutes of light to moderate a week then they need to be able to keep track of that and that could again be a device that tells them you know that keeping track of that time and puts it into an app but you could have some low-tech people who that's not what they're interested in doing and tracking it in that way but here's a really important thing to realize particularly with new exercisers some time is better than none so this could be daunting if you introduce this 150 minutes a week to a new exerciser that could be very discouraging they're like I don't have time for this. There's no way that I'm going to get in 150 minutes a week. So it could be for them that you just want to get started low and slow. Just encourage, you know, what about a 10-minute walk at lunch? What about 10 minutes after work? Even just 10 minutes once a week for a new exerciser could be an important step toward being less sedentary. So that can be, you know, part of this open discussion with somebody, you know, that yes, that may be the recommendation, but they may not be ready to go there just yet. They may just want to get something in. And then you need to make sure that they agree to this, right? This is their journey. And so you're just along as a guide in the coach approach, ultimately hoping to have them increase and progress over time, because that's the other part of this, right? The volume and progression. Volume being that combination of frequency, intensity, and time. And so you can progress by increasing the frequency or increasing the intensity or increasing the time. That any of those is going to lead to an increased volume. But something I want to mention here that may be less important for you given your um, background in exercise. But for me, for example, I'm not an um, exercise physiologist. And so for me, keeping within my scope of practice would be important here. So let's say you are not in the future going to be an exercise physiologist or AT or PT. For those, it can be important for you to be cautious of specific exercise prescriptions that address some very um, individualized concerns. So increasing somebody's work um, with walking or running, biking, that might not seem as though it is outside your scope of practice. However, if you start to get into conversations with individuals who are talking about addressing a deficiency or pain or an issue something that they feel that certain area is weak and they want to do for example resistance or muscle strengthening because they're having sciatic pain or because they're having some other issue that may be a case where you may want to step back and say that's kind of out of my wheelhouse i am not an expert in the exercises that may specifically help you with that issue Therefore, I would recommend you reach out to 
this PT or this um, exercise physiologist who could help you with increasing your endurance, increasing your strength. You know, so some of these are important to realize that there could come a point where you're crossing a line into something that you are not an expert in. And so you may want to be cautious, particularly given liability issues that you're not outside of your scope of practice when talking about an exercise prescription that is very specific. And we'll talk about the same idea when we get to the nutrition part of lifestyle medicine. Because if you are not a registered dietitian nutritionist, then you shouldn't be counseling on a specific meal plan for a diabetic patient, for example. But in general, you can help people make their own choices um, or investigating you know, ways that they want to improve their nutrition. But specific meal plans, for example, when we talk about nutrition would be outside of your scope of practice. Now, in general, the whole idea here then is that we are really hoping to move people towards structured exercise, ideally 150 minutes of moderate exercise a week or 75 of vigorous. So this could be all kinds of different options and getting at what is um most interested to a person is going to be important and variety so that you don't have boredom setting in and that they, you know, just are no longer interested in activity. But I again want to emphasize that for some, they may need to not refer to this as exercise. In the beginning, you have highly sedentary people. You may have to start with increasing their lifestyle activity. So just encouraging them to sit less, taking the stairs instead of the elevator, parking farther away from stores, you know, riding their bike to places if they're in a neighborhood or community where things are close enough to do that, walking during breaks at work, walking the dog, um, you know, walking to a train or bus stop as opposed to taking your car to the parking lot outside of that um, rapid transit, for example, doing yard work vacuuming, cleaning, things that may not seem like exercise, but are less sitting. And this can be a good sort of um, foray into more exercise because they may feel that they they realize they feel better um, increasing that activity. And they may just feel more productive and they're like, yeah, this is great. I want to do more of it. So this is where that, and this isn't addressed in your textbook, but I feel it's really important to address here, particularly if you're working with people who have been sedentary, is this idea of NEAT or non-exercise activity. This is anything that uses energy. And so this could be a really great place to start for new exercisers, just encouraging them to sit less and move more. And by doing this, that feeling of being more productive um, and having an increase in mood allows them to develop confidence and want to explore something more formal. And once they're ready, Once they're ready for more formal, then you get into finding joyful movement. And this goes back to what we talked about in some of that motivational interviewing approach of using positive psychology and appreciative inquiry. You know, what kind of exercise activity do you enjoy? Don't make assumptions. Let them be the guide as to how you want to move forward with their physical activity or exercise plan. Remember, you're just the coach. You're not the expert in their life. You're just their kind of guide on the side. And so, you know, they may say, I really don't like sweating. Okay, well, what types of things do you enjoy? You know, 
it could be that this is the type of person who likes to be outside in nature. And so going on hikes or going for walks in a park is way more enjoyable for them than going to a gym and using exercise equipment. So being open to everybody may have something different that works for them. And that if our point is just to have people sit less and move more, then let's be open to whatever that may include for people. Because ideally, if we could start, particularly with sedentary individuals, increasing their non-exercise activity, that could lead to confidence to start more exercise. That then further boosts confidence and self-efficacy to achieve a level of fitness. And that by getting fit, they ultimately are led to better health. And so this then leads us into more discussion of other lifestyle areas that follow the same kind of idea of moving people into gradual steps more toward greater health and improved lifestyle to reduce their chronic disease risk.